today's the last day of unleavened bread. What has your last week been like? What have been your experiences over the last seven days? Has it been busy? Usually the busy work of life does not stop because we're celebrating a feast, especially for the unleavened bread, maybe for the Feast of Tabernacles, but that has a different kind of busy because of all the things we do. But perhaps your feast of unleavened bread has been rather busy, maybe hectic. And if we managed to take the time, allocate the time, to use these days as God intended for us to continue our examination and think about what our lives are like, what might be lacking, where we need to change, that God would influence that that train of thought. Have we allocated the time to do that? And in reality, that's hard to do, frankly, because it's a busy world, it's a busy life. And how we manage to set aside the right amount of time to reflect on our spiritual lives, very, very important. But I, I've been mentioned to a few people at the office that it seems like the Feast of Tabernacle or the Feast of Unleavened Bread sometimes just zooms by. The Feast of Tabernacles is, can go rapidly, but these seven days, one way or the other, it just seems like they just fly by. It seems you can start eating your unleavened bread, and all of a sudden it's your last day to eat it. Uh, so we have to make sure we use this time properly, and reflect on our lives. Well, what have you and I thought about this week? Uh, we, Mr. Weston mentioned on the first day of Unleavened Bread about one item of joy, but we have had over the last several weeks this opportunity to do our own analysis and the kinds of things that you and I should should study, should examine ourselves and just picture that as, well, what do I need to do with my life? And if we devoted some time this week to doing that and understanding what the Feast of Unleavened Bread is all about, and it applies to very various ways to each one of us, but there are some overriding things that we need to consider, and we have our individual challenges since we have to work on those items. But this morning, I'd like to talk about one of the overriding lessons behind the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and that of forgiveness. Forgiveness. And how it affects our lives. And I'd like to discuss this topic as it relates to godly love. So if you want a title for the sermon, I just put Godly Love and Forgiveness. Godly Love and Forgiveness. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians 13, one of the obvious sections of Scripture concerning godly love, where we're given, I think, a lot of understanding of the importance of this character trait. 1 Corinthians 13, and these things we've been through many times, and maybe even a few uh studied this during the Days of Unleavened Bread. You, you can, First Corinthians, in general, that whole, the, the whole epistle, relates to Passover time, this Passover season. And so perhaps some of us studied this book somewhat, read through it. But let's go through through First Corinthians 13 and remind ourselves of just what godly love should enable us to do and the kinds of things we should not be doing. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, Paul writes, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clinging cymbal. Now, so he tells us there that love is much more important than being a great orator. Reminds me of, you know, you could have the account uh, about Herod in, in Acts chapter 12, where Herod is speaking and is so impressive that the people yell out that it's like the voice of God talking to them. Now, we know what happened to Herod afterward because he did not give God the glory, but people can be very, very impressed by uh, 
great oratory. It's uh, interesting, the, uh, the uh, Gettysburg Address uh, takes about three minutes, if that, to, to give. And some people consider that the greatest speech ever given in American history. But that was just, he was sort of a warm-up act when Abraham Lincoln gave that. There was an orator who had been hired to present his presentation. And he spoke for over two hours from by memory. And yet, when it was all said and done, he made the comment that President Lincoln had managed to say in about three minutes what it took him two and a half hours to say. So people can be very impressed by oratory. You know, or we had one president, Mr. Reagan. President Reagan was considered, I think, the great communicator. And because of his ability to speak and to communicate with not only other politicians, but with the common man, so to speak, that he was able to get a lot of his political agenda achieved and still recognized and considered by many as a great president. But whatever that ability might be for a human being, God tells us that being a great communicator, while admirable as it may be, is absolutely worthless if it doesn't come from an expression of godly love. Otherwise, it's just so much noise. That's what... Verse 1 is telling us that we can do these things that are so impressive humanly, but if godly love is not there, then it's just so much noise. In verse 2, he writes, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Now, let's think about that verse for a moment. Uh, the Bible tells us without faith we can't please God, so it's very important. But how impressed would any one of us be, just as an example here with what's talked about, if someone in the congregation had the gift of prophecy and could foretell what was going to come to pass in very short order and then see those things happen. Now, we those things uh, prophecy can talk about foretelling. It can also talk about forthtelling, mean preaching. But there were individuals in the Corinthian church that had that gift. And so Paul is explaining how, how important that is. But if someone had that, prophet, had that ability, would you and I be impressed? Would we take note of it? Well, of course we would. Uh, if someone had all knowledge, it says here they had all knowledge. What if someone, one of us, could suddenly have the ability, the gift, to explain all the things that we don't know yet in various scriptures, the full meaning behind them. Well, we'd be impressed. We'd recognize it as a gift. What about the faith? He says, I have all faith. What if one of us had, for good reason, not just to be showing, but for good reason, had the faith to move a mountain? And we saw that happen. That'd be that'd be pretty exciting. Uh, we know that Elisha and Elijah uh, took the cape that was up from Elisha, Elijah, took the cape and swatted the, the river Jordan River, and it stopped flowing. And so Elisha wanted double portion of that spirit. And when Elijah disappeared, Elisha took the cape and he struck the river, and he said, "Where is the God of Elijah?" And the river stopped. If we saw someone do something like that for a good reason, to have a river stop flowing, we'd, we'd take note of it. But it says here that with all of that, it'd be meaningless if the person doing it did not have the right kind of love, the godly love. In, in verse 3, he says, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing, that it doesn't gain us anything in God's eyes. Now, there are many organizations, governmental, uh, even just social organizations, and as well as religious organizations, that they provide beneficial and meaningful services to those that are in need. And we see that especially enacted at times of disasters, that a lot of organizations leap into the fray to provide support 
for those that have been harmed or those that have lost homes. And for that matter, depending on the organization and depending on the occasion, some of us here may have participated in those things. That uh, not, not uncommon for members of the church sometimes to be involved in organ, uh, organizations that provide Thanksgiving meals to those that are homeless. And all those things are good, and the people involved, and uh, they don't have God in the picture. They don't have the right kind of emotion. It doesn't count for much. It may be the civilized, quote-unquote, civilized thing to do. But without the love of God that's generated by God's Spirit, it doesn't make us righteous. Good works don't always prove love. Just a human emotion comes out. In verse 4, it says, love suffers long. So have we thought about that this past week? How long-suffering are we with others, uh, with our mates, perhaps even, with our children? And for our young adults, what about being long-suffering with our parents? And sometimes even those of us that are middle-aged and beyond, uh, with our elderly parents, long-suffering with them. How much do we care and about taking care of them and, and managing it properly? It says, love is kind, even when others aren't. And not a play on words, but or do we respond in kind when someone is not kind? Love does not covet or does not envy. It means covet or be jealous. And those emotions are extremely devious and just seemingly pop up into our minds without too much effort. So do we have envy? Love does not parade itself. It doesn't set itself forward. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 6 to look at this is one example. Very, we've referred to it many times in Matthew chapter six. Verses one through four it says, "Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them." Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. Now, what it writes here, it indicates that there were, that that, that event really happened. In order to do a, a good deed, there were people who wanted to broadcast it and literally sounded in a trumpet that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in heaven will himself reward you openly. I'd say, obviously, but love does not parade itself, does not put itself forward and promote itself. Back in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 2, I'm going to turn there. But it mentions, it says, let another man praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. So it's not puffed up as well. Last part of the verse, not arrogant. I uh, had a teacher in college, and I think I've mentioned this before, but I, I still think it's a great, uh, a great quote. What, it would be uh, maybe what Mr. Ames would call a quotable quote uh, that... Uh, See if I can get it properly. It said, uh, uh, "He who he who plays uh, his uh, his good deed, uh, uh, not so quotable. Uh, come to think of it, but uh, oh, oh, he who blows his own horn blows his reward." Toots his own horn, blows his own reward. So, anyway, that's, love doesn't do that. In chapter, in verse 5, back in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, Love does not behave rudely. 
rudely is what it's in the uh, New King James. The Old King James says unseemly, I mean inappropriate, immodestly, uh, type of behavior, does not seek its own. That certainly in preference to others. The Bible does tell us to esteem others better than ourselves. But we don't want to seek our own in preference to others that have real legitimate needs. Love is not provoked. And I think the old King James says easily provoked, but certainly not easily. And so we could ask ourselves, how easily have any one of us been provoked this past week? And anger at what someone may do or what someone may say, sometimes it's very easy to be provoked. And finally, it says, oh, thinks no evil. We're careful. With God's love, we're careful not to impute motive where there may be none, especially. And not, not our job, our duty to, to judge matters that require that sort of insight. We can't see one another's heart. In verse 6, it says, did not rejoice in iniquity. So that tells us we should not be finding pleasure in those kinds of things that are evil. Back in Isaiah, it talks about not bringing anything evil before our eyes. And it points out here, but rejoices in the truth. Verse 7, bears all things. Be tolerant of other people's differences. Uh, frankly, we, most of us, I won't say all of us, but most of us have our idiosyncrasies that are there by virtue of our backgrounds or our families or people we've been around one way or the other. We might be of our own unique differences, but we're tolerant of those differences. But that doesn't mean that we're tolerant of sin, but we're tolerant of personalities. It says here, believes all things that we think the best of others, not the negative things, hopes all things. We willing to focus on the positive and then endures all things patiently. We have a patient endurance that Mr. Ames talks about so often. Verse 8 then tells us some of the things uh, here that are not demonstrated or they're demonstrated that uh, love talks about with things we would do, how important they are. It says love never fails. Well, never is a long time. It never fails. Now, what that tells us is that God's love has never failed. Just because we make mistakes, God does not zap us at every occurrence because of our sins. He does not disown us at a moment's notice. Love never fails. How do we measure up to that? And where there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease, and where there, there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Oh, what it's telling here that all three of these items have a temporary use. Tongues are important in order to preach the gospel. We need the ability to have foreign language, but that's not there. Even Paul said he, would, he had the greater gift of tongues than anybody in Corinth, and they took apparently a certain amount of pride in that. But they had that gift that was there. But he says these things only have a temporary use. And even points out here, love will vanish away. With The word fail actually means vanish away. One of the translations for it, vanish away. So when everything is known, once all knowledge revealed, then this gift of knowledge is a temporary matter in this age. At some point, these matters, whether it be tongues or the knowledge, or that the prophecies, once they're fulfilled, their history, that these things all will come to uh, come to an end point. In verses 9 through 12, it says here, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. And for now we see in a mirror, dimly, 
but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. So he's telling us here that when the kingdom of God becomes a reality, all the tools that we need in the flesh in order to serve God, they will no longer be needed. We'll be spirit beings. All these things that are so useful now in doing the work, preaching the gospel, when everyone understands these things, that there'll be no need for those human gifts. Then he closes the chapter in verse 13. And the, I guess the crux of the, the, the sermon in, in that sense says, Now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And we know that faith and hope and love are all, they're all positive. Powerful traits of God's character. They're positive forces in our lives. We all need to have faith. It's we, we have to, without it, we can't please God. We need to have this hope so that we have this energy to keep on enduring in this life. But of those three, love is clearly the predominant trait that is the foundation for all Christian conduct and character the one that gives meaning to everything that you and I try to do in this life, developing Christ-like nature. Over in Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, we read here in verses 22 and 23, the fruit of God's Spirit. I'll read through them, but we'll take note of the first one. It says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. All those things can be, I say, we can all inspect our lives in relation to any one and all of those, those points, but he does list love here first, that tells me these it's love is the underpinning for all of those items that are that follow. First one given here is the fruit of God's Holy Spirit. So what about love? We have words for it in the in the Bible, three three words. But we have human love, and human love is is usually a natural part of one's family. The emotions that you and I uh, have whenever we see the birth of uh, one of our children. You know, it's, uh, we, uh, I think most of us know we had about, uh, 13 or 14 births in this congregation last year. So all those new families, uh, newly, somewhat newlyweds, uh, not all of them, but the emotion that when one sees that new human being, that new person, that's part of our bodies, and the mother holds that baby for the first time, the kind of love that wells up at seeing that 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 new life, that's, that's a fantastic emotion. And even within a family, you know, the, the parental love, the care, the nurturing that the parents provide, you know, for their children. It evokes and pulls from. The children have this natural uh, emotion of love and devotion to their parents. You know, it's the old old saying is, you know, my dad can whip your dad. Uh, but why? why? You know, why is, why is the child so sure of that? Well, because dad's a superman. Mom is a super mom. It's a, uh, an amazing emotion that comes out within families. But if a parent doesn't display that kind of nurturing. And in, in, in Satan's world, it's not universal that parents have the right kind of love and appreciation for their children. And if adults and parents don't provide that kind of nurture, certainly the child's love, as instinctively as it may be there, children want to look up that, but they can, that, that love can be muted. It can be destroyed in some cases. Humanly speaking, normally, we, we love those who love us. 
We don't love people that don't care for us. We don't care much for those who disagree with us or compete with us, whether it be jobs or positions one way or the other. But unconditional love, the kind of love that God is telling us we should have, right here, this, this fruit of the Spirit comes through God's Spirit. Unconditional love. God loves his creation. And he does not love the evil. He does not love the sin. But he does love the human being. He does love his creation. He does love that person. He wants all of us to be in his kingdom. Over in Romans chapter 5, how do we know that? Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Christ died for a lot more that don't know his truth, have never known his truth. Christ died for a lot more than what few people are here or in the congregations around the world celebrating this last day of unleavened bread. He loves all of us, and he would like all of us to be in his family, all of us to be in his kingdom. And to that end, Christ died for us. John 3.16 tells us this, and our booklet on John 3.16, if it's not something you've not read in a good while, then it'd be good to do so. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Everyone would have this opportunity given to him or to her in order to be in in God's kingdom. And Christ offered himself for as many as would accept him. And in due time, we all know that God, the vast majority of mankind will accept that sacrifice and will serve God. But it says God so loved his creation. He loves us that much that he would willingly let his son die for us, suffer for us. And both of those verses render the the Greek word there, I'm sure we've known this before, but is agape, referring to a designated kind of love that God expresses, of deep, spiritual, outgoing concern for, for us, for his people, and for all of mankind. It's more than a human, a brotherly love. And we know from Galatians chapter 5, I won't, I won't read all of it, but Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, and on through, I think, through verse uh, 22 or 23 talks about the works of the flesh and God doesn't God's spirit and his love doesn't have anything to do with those items those are the things that we do not want to be a part of our lives the world is that way we want to I think the, the, the old King James says the shoes all these works of the flesh avoids them wants to root them out of our lives And this godly love has two overriding elements to it, as we all know. Let's turn back to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, verses 35 through 38. Matthew 22, verses 35 through 38. says, Then one of them, a lawyer, Ask him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. So we're told here we are to love God with our whole being, with our heart, our soul, our mind. Our entire being. Now that, I'm, I'm sure the lawyer 
knew this because we can find there are three, <clears throat> three or four places, and I'll mention them here. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. You can turn there if you like, but I'll just read it to you. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So, with everything that's in us, then in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 10, uh, 12 and 13, Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 and 13, I'll read. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. So our obedience should be with our whole being. Then also in Deuteronomy 30, verses 2 and 3, breaking into the middle of a thought about where Israel would repent. He says, And you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. According to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart, with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. So again, when we come before God, it's a matter of doing that Again, deeply, with sincerity, with all of our being. Then he adds in verse 6 of Deuteronomy 30, If you do this, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. Now that's in the Old Testament. That's under the Old Covenant. But if we do this with our whole heart, if we give our whole being, into this, God says he will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. So it tells us if we come before him with that kind of attitude, this great first and great commandment, if we repent and put our human effort, we really put a lot of human effort into obeying his law, that God will circumcise our hearts. He will convert us. He will give us his spirit. He will give us the ability to change. He will do that, change our minds. We can love God. Of course, that, we know that's, uh, as far as the instructions go, that's given to us in the first four commandments, that we can love. He said he will give us this circumcised heart, this converted mind, that we, with his spirit, can learn to love even as God loves. Have that same kind of emotion, deep, outgoing concern for others. Let's go back to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verse 39 now. Matthew 22, verse 39. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is a summary, obviously, of the last six commandments. All the Ten Commandments are expanded and explained in God's statutes and judgments. But we shall love, we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're supposed to not only love God, but love others. Let's turn back then quickly to Matthew chapter 5. And just get some of the flavor of the godly love that God does want us and expects us to develop and have. Because when he says to love our neighbor as ourself, then uh, those are easy words to, to read. They're easy words to say. But let's turn back to Matthew chapter 5 again, verse 44. And Christ is expounding the, the spiritual meaning behind God's laws. Verse 44, he says, But I say to you, love your enemies. That's not easy. 
that takes God's help for those things to be achieved. Bless those who curse you. Again, the question I asked earlier was, how easily are we provoked? Someone, whether it be maybe a co-worker, verbally assault you? How do we react? Bless those who curse you. That's what we're supposed to do. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Have you ever had someone take advantage of you? I doubt that there's anyone here that has not experienced that one sometime or at least once in their life to have someone take advantage of them. And when you find out about it, provocation, emotions well up. How could that dirty scalawag, you know, why would he do that? But if we do these things, why do we do them? Verse 45, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven to become like God. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, which is what is the normal human character, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same, which tax collectors, that's pretty much a pejorative vocation, especially there, you know, that they like each other, but nobody liked the tax collectors. You know, you work for the IRS? Oh, I thought you were a good guy, you know. No, that's not the case. But the tax collectors admire each other. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so, because they were such a, I guess, a uh, rejected element of society and, and vocation. But if you do these things, in verse verse forty forty uh, verse forty four, and not act like the tax collectors do, therefore you shall be perfect, you'll be mature, you'll be godlike. In that that regard, just as your Father in heaven is perfect, able to have that kind of character, to not be overcome by others' wrong deeds. Again, in Matthew chapter 22, in verse 39 was, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In verse 22, chapter 22, verse 40, It's a a pretty big statement. And on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. These two laws underpin everything, the laws, the statutes, the judgments, the instructions that have been given by the prophets, by the servants of God. All of these things are underpinned in the origin, if you will, the, the genesis for those two commandments. To love God with all our heart, soul, and our being, and our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. But what, because those, those two commandments were the origin, if you will, for all of the other laws that explained that in great detail, especially for ancient Israel, even the civil laws that were a reflection of, of love and respect for the neighbors. What's the origin of those two commandments, those two great commandments? First of it, turn back to First John chapter four. First John chapter four. We'll read verses sixteen and nineteen. Verse sixteen, and we have known and believed the love that God has for us. <clears throat> God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. We love him because he first loved us. God loved us so much he gave Christ to to become our Savior. So God is love. That's his nature. And these two commandments, loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves, all of those 
And those Ten Commandments, they're all products of God's character, that God is love, and how he wants us to learn to express that. And he gives us plenty of detail for it. He tells us that this, this nature of his, that God is love, in Romans chapter 3, <clears throat> verse 25, Romans 3, verse 25. Breaking again into the middle of a thought. It says, Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. God's love and God is righteous. He wants us to be like him. And then because of his forbearance, his long-suffering, his love. God had had passed over the sins of those that were previously committed. Passed over the sins that were previously committed. What's, What's past? He wiped those things out because he wants us to be righteous the same way he is, and that willingness to do that demonstrates his righteousness, his care for us. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, back just a page or so. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. It says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? That God's patience and gentleness, he just is willing to go the long road, working with us and does not lose patience with us because we have our occasional failings and our sins. Paul writes this thing so easily beset us. God's love is there regardless. And his patience is what we understand after a while that, uh, that, God's patience is all the more reason for us to repent. You know, sometimes children can be corrected simply by a look from mom or dad. And that relationship of the disappointment, and they're sorry. And it's the same way with us as human human beings converted by God, that we by God's Spirit, that we come to realize, in spite of all the things that our failings, that God still cares for us, that God has still provided for us. And we owe him our very being. We owe him every breath we take. And that gives us motivation to change. His goodness and suffering, long-suffering are expressions of his love. But how do we express love for our brethren? What do you and I do to show that love? Certainly, there are good works. We serve one another. We do physical things for one another. When there are needs, we show our love for them by our prayers. We, we ask sometimes for congregational prayers when someone is, is having a serious problem. It could be a long-term problem. We ask the whole congregation to pray about it. And if we take note of that, and sometimes we keep our list. That's why we have updates, because we want to take names off the list. Uh, but there are occasions, I know of occasions, where someone has prayed for years about someone else's situation because it didn't go away, but they kept praying. That's a certain way we serve one another. That's a, certainly we do that. We serve one another through fellowship. But that's the way we serve. But also, because we are human, we have our mistakes. We need to consider this, that if God expressed his love for you and for me and willing to forgive us, even while we were still in our sins, and even God provided a means by which we can be forgiven by giving up Jesus Christ by allowing him to suffer for us. If we can be forgiven through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, uh, 
then godly love in us will enable us to forgive others. That's why we go back to the title of the sermon, Godly Love and Forgiveness. Because Passover season is about forgiveness. It's about repentance. It's about rejoicing because we do have a Savior. The kinds of ways we can serve one another and show this godly love. There are several Proverbs I'd like to make reference to. Proverbs chapter 12, 10, verse 12. Proverbs 10, verse 12. It says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. So our love for one another, if we are aware that someone else is making a mistake, someone else is sinning, it's not a topic of conversation. It's not something we share with others. Love will cover that up and pray about that situation. Proverbs 19, 17, verse 9. Proverbs 17, verse 9. He who covers the transgression seeks love. That Maybe the person might find out that you've protected their reputation, you've protected their privacy. And that person is going to be grateful that you and I, you or I do that. Proverbs 11, verse 13. But he who is of, of a faithful spirit conceals a matter. Sometimes it's we share our private matters, our concerns, our mistakes, our weaknesses, perhaps with someone we consider a confidant, someone that is absolutely trustworthy to keep that private, to, to pray about it for us, with us. And it says a faithful spirit does that, someone that deserves that, that trust. And once someone tells us, shares that, that private matter with us, we protect it, we cover it, and we pray about it. Proverbs 11, or Proverbs 19, verse 11. Proverbs 19, 11. The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger. He's not easily provoked. And his glory is to overlook a transgression. God tells us that that is a very special thing for us to overlook it, to forgive it, perhaps forgive it without even receiving an apology for what someone might do to offend us. It's a glory. It gives glory to the person to overlook a transgression. Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, it's part of the outline of prayer that Jesus Christ gave us, does remind us that the onus is on each one of us to express godly love by being willing to forgive. These are... Sobering accounts, sobering scriptures in Matthew chapter 6 and elsewhere. We'll turn, we mention one in just a minute. But verse 14 and 15 says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Would any of us dare to draw a line between ourselves and one of our brethren for whatever reason and not be willing to forgive. And some things can be difficult. It, it is difficult to forgive. You know, the Bible says that God will not, he will forgive. He talks about Israel. He'll forgive them and he will remember their sins no more. 
and I've said this before, it doesn't mean God has amnesia. <laughs> it doesn't. It just says he chooses not to remember that. It doesn't come to his mind. He casts it out. And for human beings, we just don't have that ability. But if someone apologizes, someone repents and apologizes, and we say it's okay. Does our relationship go back to what it was before? Where we really, the person is forgiven? That we don't harbor some ill will about what's happened to us? It says here, if we don't forgive, that God doesn't forgive us. Sobering thought. Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. I won't, I won't read all of that. But that's the parable of the unforgiving servant. Where one is forgiven and then he goes his way and is not willing to forgive others under him. But the important verse is verse 35 of Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verse 35. Notice what it says here. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. So our forgiveness has to be sincere. Our forgiveness has to be genuine. From the heart, we accept someone's apology. We accept someone's regret for what they've done or what they've said. And we don't draw some sort of spiritual line that says, that's too much. You've gone too far. That's... We can go, one person wants to, if a person wants to reject God, you know, God doesn't walk away from them, we walk away from God. God says, yes, there is a sin that will go, will go too far if we deliberately, willingly, knowingly turn from Him and never turn back. But if someone repents and apologizes to us, you and I should be ready and willing to receive that from the heart, forgive them. There's a similar account given over in Mark chapter 11, verses 24 through 26. We can turn there if you want. Mark 11, verses 24 through 26. Therefore I say to you in verse 24, Whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And the context is, if you read the previous verses of Mark 11, here that uh, shows this is a uh, explanation given at Passover time. Even in, it, it's a similar uh, uh, account in over in John chapter 12. In my notes here, verses 1 through 15 talks about that these were I think, six days before Passover, and then gives the, the whole context of, of the, what is to be done. And this explanation of being forgiving was given at Passover from Christ to his disciples. So it's an element that you and I, if we're going to have godly love, we need to be able to forgive from the heart. And we have to consider then, as we do at Passover, that Christ admonished us to take this one step further. That different phraseology here than just what we read in the two, the two commandments, the first great commandment and the one is like it. Over in John chapter 13, John chapter 13, we read this at Passover. Verses 34 and 35. 
This is a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. As Christ, literally as you, a human being, God on the earth, was able to express the godly love that we are to develop. He had it. That you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Then in chapter 15, chapter 15 of John, verses 9 through 12. Verse 9, as a father loved me, I also have loved you. One can only try to imagine or meditate on, think about what kind of love did the father have for Jesus Christ who had emptied himself of his divinity and was willingly becoming the savior for mankind. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, that your joy may be full, that this element of joy, maybe Mr. Weston spoke about, comes by God's Spirit having this kind of camaraderie, this kind of unity, this kind of harmony. And this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So how how had he loved them? What Why was Christ able to say that? Think about the situation, if you will. In Matthew 26, right after completing the Passover service, and reading the, <clears throat> singing the hymn, they're going out to the Mount of Olives in Matthew 26, verses 31 through 35. Verse 31, Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. But Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. In spite of the three-plus years they had been together and they had seen Christ do all of these miracles and the things he had done with them and taught them. They still didn't get all of it, obviously, because they didn't have God's spirit yet. So Peter's pretty self-assured of his human willpower. And so Christ explains it to him. They know you're going to deny me. And Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. So said all the disciples. Now, that account is also given in Luke. And after Peter had denied Jesus Christ twice, uh, let's we'll turn over to Luke 22. Luke 22, verses 60 through 62. So this, he already denied Peter twice. We break into, this, into the account here. And his third person says to him, Peter accuses him, of being with Christ. And Peter responds, Man, I do not know what you're saying. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and bitterly wept. So Christ knew what was about to happen. But his love for Peter, if you will, he understood what was about to happen, but he knew what would come after that. He would use that to Peter. He would use Peter in his service. And Christ had early and uh, 
talk to Peter and all the disciples for that matter, that Peter would survive what was about to happen. He would survive that night. In Luke 22, verses 31 and 32, back in the previous previous verses, Christ had warned Peter in one sense, but also was assuring Peter, this is going to work out okay. Verse 31 and 32, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you, that he may sift you as wheat. So Satan, he tells him this, that Peter tells Peter, you're a target for Satan. Very powerful being. Satan wants you because he knows the kind of service and function Peter's going to have. He certainly can see that. And Christ says, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, after you've later on, after you've denied me three times, and you can you you repent of that, then strengthen your brethren. You're going to be the servant that will help strengthen my church. So he had loved them. In spite of knowing, and all of them said this, in spite of knowing that they, they wouldn't hold up, that under the pressure of the moment, they would lose temporarily. The same is with us. We lose temporarily on occasion, don't we? We make mistakes. We sin. But God does not give up on us. And that's the same way we have to deal with each other in terms of being willing to forgive. It requires God's Spirit for us to practice this kind of forgiveness, even if we could see it coming, and being willing to allow it, put up with it, and forgive it. He had taught them about this kind of character, but they didn't have God's Spirit yet, so they had to practice it later on. Christ prayed for them, and he also prayed for us. He has given us his Spirit, and one of the things that he expects of us is to use that Spirit and forgive others even as we are forgiven. Have that very nature built into us. The nature of one of forgiveness. So as we finish this Passover season and we observe this last day of unleavened bread, let us strive to exercise God's spirit in our relations with one another. As human beings, we have our moments sometimes that are disappointing. We can ask God to help us have that same kind of forgiving spirit and have it godly love expressed with one another by having that kind of unity. Doing that will bring us as one body into God's kingdom. That kind of attitude, that kind of character, means something we'll be sharing this life together. Even as mentioned in the sermonette again, we'll be sharing that celebration because we have, in fact, learned to have the godly love as we deal with one another, bringing us into God's kingdom in unity. And that's the plan that God has for us. All right, let's close with John 17 and think about this oneness that God has with Jesus Christ and the oneness that he wants us to have with him and the oneness he wants us to have with one another. Christ is here praying to the Father in John 17, verses 20 through 23. I do not pray for these alone but also for those who will believe in me through their word. You and I are here because he prayed, and we believe what they wrote. They believe these accounts. We believe the inspiration of the scriptures. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Not just the twelve disciples. Not just the apostles. But all of us, he's praying for us, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are. We have God's Holy Spirit made possible through the sacrifice of Christ, and he went off, he went to heaven to present that sacrifice to the Father, 
and the helper and the comforter came to us and gives us understanding and gives us strength so that we can be one with each other and one with the Father. And in the last verse, I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect, spiritually mature, able to have the same kind of attitudes, the same nature that the Father has and Christ has, may be made perfect in one, and the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. That God loves all of us the same way he loved Christ. And he's given us his spirit and begotten us as his children so that we can practice these things to become like him. And sharing this love means forgiving one another, supporting one another, helping one another. And it only comes through God's spirit.